here. Test, test. All right. Welcome to Faith Over Breakfast. This is Eric Seepin from the Village Church. Andy, who knows where Andy is? He's somewhere in Oregon uh, driving in his Ford truck. But today I have Adrian Crawford with me, and I've known you, I was trying to figure this out, 12 years now? I think longer than that. Longer than 12 years? When did you guys come to the village? Well, it was 13 years in August, right? It's the day that Elliot was born. Right. was the day that we came. That's right. That's how we mark it. So 13 years, that's a long time. It is a long time. (laughs) (laughs) We are getting old. Uh Uh-huh. Like, you came and David and you had been married... For how long were you? Three months. Three months? Yeah. You know, I never really connected that, but you guys had only been married for It's so months. crazy. <laughs> wow. And I have three kids. Mm-hmm. So the oldest is Bentley. Uh-huh. How old is Bentley? He's nine. And Clayton? Is eight. And Lily is six. Six. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Life has changed. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. I was thinking that it's funny, you're, you're on and you're David's uh, wife, David Crawford, and we're always giving the Crawfords a little bit of a hard time on the podcast, because they're the only two people who tease us about the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you're the first one to get on the podcast. <laughs> um, so what we were going to, I wanted to talk to you about, because it, I think it's something that's pretty dear to your heart, is... I mean, I guess I would think of you as an activist, but you're kind of a non-traditional activist. Um, and But since I've known you, you've cared about people who are marginalized. That's really where you felt like mm-hmm. your voice, um, I don't know, it resonated with you connecting there. I mean, you used to have movie nights at your house where mm-hmm. we would watch obscure movies about, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like Hotel Rwanda, you know, where... where the slums of Brazil. The slums of Brazil. Mm-hmm. I, what were, do you remember the other? There was one other that I that was pretty. The slums of Brazil was pretty violent. And yeah. It was pretty what was that hard. Just, um, called that one? Something of God. God. Oh, City of God. City of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are the three big ones that I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Us kind of talking about and discussing back then, thirteen years ago. Yeah. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about just how you got there. Like, how did you get to a place where you're like, I want to speak up for these people. I want to be part of their life. I want to begin to use my voice and whatever resources I have. Yeah. So my dad is a pastor. And in 1975, he rode his bike with three of his friends from Detroit, Michigan to La Paz, Bolivia. I took a year. And this is that was the first he's done this. Yeah, he's since. ridden his bike a lot. Not outside the country, but yeah, he's ridden his bike across the United States a few times. And when he does these trips, he meets people. That's what he does. I think that's where I get my um, ability to ask people questions and engage with them is because I grew up with it. He would come out of the bathroom with a new friend, you know? <laughs> so um, he, I grew up with the slideshow of his trip down to South America and the stories of people and their um, homes. They would invite him in and they would feed him. And, um, you know, many of the people were poor and um, they raised money for world hunger. 
And so I just grew up with this longing to see the world. And so I had decided I'd be an elementary school teacher and I'd go to college and, um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. But in the process, I also wanted to study abroad. So I lived in Spain for a while and Spain, I think, impacted me in a lot of ways that I look back and see in terms of like politics and religion and just, you know, it's Western Europe and they have a long history and they've really thought about things. And, um, and so they challenged my thinking a lot while I was there. Um, cause as my Spanish, um, got better, we were able to have deeper conversations about a lot of things. But the thing that changed me the most was, um, I went to Cuba in 2002 and that's when I met David and I went because it was an island, and I wanted to be in the Caribbean. <laughs> I had to, like, there's really shallow reasons, and right. I just wanted to go, you know, snorkeling and swimming. And so I met David one night, and, um, you know, we were drinking rum and coke, and he was smoking Cuban cigars. And um, I said, what are you going to do tomorrow? Because we had two choices. We could go snorkeling, or we could go into Trinidad, which is this old uh, Spanish colonial city. And he looked at me like, why are you even asking this question? I'm going to Trinidad. Like, <laughs> he was a history major and, you know, super smart. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go to Trinidad, too. <laughs> so I Let's went. skip the snorkeling. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like, oh, wow, maybe maybe that's shallow of me to, like, want to go snorkeling. <laughs> so I went to Trinidad, and he became my, like, personal teacher. And he, like, taught me about the history of, you know, Cuba and about the history of Spain and, like, all these things. I mean, he was just, like, he memorizes information and then he just regurgitates it. And so I was, like, I cannot be an elementary school teacher because I don't know enough about the world. I felt like I had always done really well in school, but I hadn't actually learned anything that was applicable to the world. So after that trip, I changed my major to international studies, and um, and then I really started taking some serious classes like third world issues, um, and looking at international business, looking at history, looking at um, um, Eastern Middle Eastern studies, all kinds of stuff that just changed me. And then David and I would go. Um, we saw Hotel Rwanda together. And when it was over, I just sat in the theater for like a half an hour and cried because he remembered it. He remembered the genocide and I had no memory. I didn't even know it had happened. And so I just felt like I've grown up my whole life and I didn't even know that these things were happening across the world. And that like really affected me. And I didn't want to live in denial of what was out there is kind of how I see it. Um, and so I took in every movie and I read every book that I could get my hands on. Um, and so when we got married, the next thing that we did, well, so we dated and then we got married and um, we were at your house and there was, I don't know why, it was like a party or something and a friend of yours was there and she was a social worker and she, I was asking her about her job and she, you know, she said she worked in foster care and I was like, oh, do they need homes for kids? And she was like, yeah, we need <laughs> thousands of homes for kids. And I was like, we could do that. 
So I said to David, I think we should get licensed and take in foster kids. And he was like, okay. Which looking back is like one of those things where he doesn't say yes very, very easily. easily. No, no. So we signed up with it. Well, it was funny because we went to this big room, you know, where they had all the agencies there and no one talked to us because, you know, we were 22 and 23 years old. And not only that, but we looked like babies. Like we have very young faces. Right. And so no one would talk to us except for this one man from um, Arizona Baptist Children's Services, which is funny because I didn't want to be with a Christian agency for whatever reason. But this man, Ralph, welcomed us and took us right in. And so we went with him and that's how we got involved in foster care. Um, And so foster care, you know, again, it was another experience opening up our world. We had a little girl... Um, our first placement was an emergency placement, and um, she was with us for about a week. And she um, had been physically abused. Um, her mom was out of the country, and she was with her stepdad, and um, it was awful. And so, but because she was an emergency placement, and she had biological grandmothers in the state, you know, they came. They call. She. Like, they called, they brought her that evening, and then they called, and they took her away, like, seven days later. And I didn't realize how hard that was going to be. Right. So I said no more, and we shut our doors for probably two months. Yes. Um, and I think I cried at your house, like, every day, probably, for those two months. Because I really loved her, and I wanted to be a mom, you know, and I wanted to save her. I had this idea, you know, that I could save her, which, you know, I'm, I was a little naive, right? Well, that's usually what gets us into things, right? Being naive it's, and being twenty, and yeah. in your twenties, you think you can solve all the problems, right? Right. And then, I think my thirties have been like, I can't solve anything. <laughs> I'm helpless. <laughs> this is true. So you did three months, like you basically mourned for a couple months, mm-hmm. but you guys reopened your doors. Yeah, we did. My cousin had a baby in Phoenix. Um, the doctors had told her to terminate the baby because the baby had been diagnosed with hydrocephalus and they had painted the worst case scenario. And so she and I had talked extensively about options other than, you know, termination. And she decided to keep her. Avery's now 11 and is a true joy um, and has minimal delays um, considering everything she's been through um, and is in a bilingual school. And anyway, so I went up there held her and welcomed her into the world and I was like I think it's time again and so we um, said we would we opened up our age range to a larger range to take in younger children and when we did that a little girl who had been in the system all of a sudden popped up and she had been at a local group home for young children um, for several months because she was pretty violent and so most families that do foster care have children and she was it was suggested that she not be with other children and she was considered a therapeutic foster placement which at the time I didn't really understand but I was like we well we we kind of dated her for a while so we'd pick her up and we'd take her to lunch and play with her then she had an overnight and then we sat down with all the caseworkers and we said we'd take her and so um, and this was a little girl with um, cognitive disabilities, um, and she had been neglected. She was failure to thrive. Um, she'd been left in meth houses, and she had a lot. 
And she mourned her siblings and her mom and dad mm. a lot. She cried a lot for them, which I think was good for me to see because it, what we learn is that no matter how painful the experience that children have, they always want their biological mom and dad, like generally, and, or even, you know, or they'll defend them. Yes. You know? So um, she, she was with us for a long time and we tried to adopt her. And then um, during kind of like a lot of things that were happening in the spring, um, David got into medical school right away into uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. But um, it, it's a really good medical school and he had done exceptionally well, scored like in the 90th percentile on his MCATs and had a 4.0. There was like no reason that he couldn't go to any medical school in the country. Um, but he wanted to stay at the U of A because we wanted to stay here. And he, um, in April, he got his rejection letter and we were shocked. And so because we had had a backup in Detroit, uh, we knew we were going to be moving in the next like three months. Yeah. Oh, I remember that time. (laughs) (laughs) It was very emotional. It was. Yeah. For all of us. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people tried to convince us not to go. No, they did. Yeah, we mm-hmm. all did. I mean, we, we loved you and didn't want you to go. Yeah. Um, so, a long story short, they wouldn't let us take her with us. So, um, we had to help her get situated in a new home. And then after we left, she bounced around to like four new homes. And... Um, and she got ended up getting adopted, and I've lost touch with her and anyone that has contact with her at this point. So that's mm. too bad. Yeah. But I pray for her, and she just had her um, 16th birthday in March. Wow. So she's out there somewhere yeah. doing something. Um, so, so you then, guys went, yeah. to, you went to Detroit, and for the first year of medical school, you were in a very ritzy kind of uh-huh. section of Michigan. We were in Ann Arbor. You were in Ann Arbor. The, heart, the hub of intellectuals and yes. wealth and beauty. A lot of things we didn't even recognize, you know, when we got there. Yeah. Um, we went to his aunt and uncle's church, which is a thriving, um, very... It's um, a very giving church. There's a lot of money and a lot of givers. Um, and they do a lot of things in their community. And and then in other, in Rwanda, they have work in Rwanda and they do work in Mexico. And um, yeah. So I got involved with the youth group and um, we went, we were in Bible study and we tried to volunteer whenever we could. Right. So this, and this in some ways was a even spiritually a big shift for David and it seems like David kind of went from because when you guys came to the village you were coming back to faith that's right mm-hmm. and, and and in some ways David will even say like that was his point of faith um, and then all of a sudden you guys are jumping into a big church you go from a little kind of eclectic church into a big church volunteering yeah. doing youth group having tons of people at your place if I remember yeah we would we did it we would have people over to our little condo a lot but we also the church had this place called the lodge and it was this like two-story like amazing facility with like wood floors and wood walls and downstairs was like a 
horizontal climbing wall for the youth. Oh, my and gosh. Upstairs was, like, a full kitchen with, like, a wraparound deck, like, looking out over the woods. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was beautiful. I didn't even recognize, like, how beautiful it was at the time. And so we had Thursday night potluck there. Mm. And so we started it with another couple who were just, like, they had one little girl. She was about 18 months old. And we were, like, let's people want a community. And so yeah. I think that that... Thursday night potluck is still happening today. Oh, wow. And none of us who started it, or the, at least our two immediate families, don't belong there anymore. But Or they belong to the church. But anyways, yeah. So it was a lasting impact. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a shift for you guys. But then you decided, like, what made you guys decide to move into inner city Detroit? Like, next to Wayne State, basically. Yeah. Well... You know, David was in school in Detroit. Right. God had clearly told us we like when our our interpretation of him not getting into the U of A was that we were that God wanted us in Detroit. Yeah. And so, um, but everyone said you can't live in Detroit; it's too dangerous. Um, you should live in Ann Arbor, which is about a forty-five minute drive on a good day, and in the snow, it could take a lot longer. So David had some long commutes. And um, we had been studying, you know, different scriptures, but we just, and we'd been reading Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne was huge in this. Yes. Um, and his Irresistible Revolution had just come out, I think, a couple years prior. So we're reading Shane Claiborne, and we're hitting scriptures that are like, sell everything you have and give to the poor and don't be afraid. And, you know, kind of like, as Christians, we're supposed to like, deny any privilege and wealth in a way was like that was how we read it and even though people would push back we really felt like no god is telling us to move to the inner city and we're denying that by being in discomfort and we're not afraid um and so we kind of went with and and you hadn't had bentley yet no we didn't have any kids so you were still without children yes which i think you know, and that was also part of the reason that we had bought the condo in Ann Arbor is we wanted to bring that little girl with us. And so we were trying to prove to the state that we were um, stable and that we would get her in the best schools in the state of Michigan. So that was also tied to that decision to buy that condo. Um, so I was pregnant, though, when we decided to move. Okay. Um so was that scary at all, thinking that you were pregnant and you were going, or were you really excited? I was super excited, but I said, I've never been to Detroit, so you're going to have to take me. Like, we had driven down there a little bit when David got in, and right. we went to Scout that April before we moved. Um, but he, at this point, was familiar with Detroit, and so we went down on Labor Day weekend, which is a huge jazz festival in downtown Detroit, and we had a friend there who had bought a house and... Um, for $10,000, and this was way, you know, before the city was gentrified in any sense. Um, he bought it because he was going to go to Wayne State, and he's from Michigan, and it was this historic house from the 1800s. Um, and he stood in the basement and could see out the roof. It had been abandoned, you know, and he was in the, and he didn't want to, he didn't want to just fix it up. He wanted to restore it to its former glory. Um, and so he loved the city. He loves the city. And so he and his wife took us on a tour and their passion for the city, um, changed me. And Mm. I like, I was ready. We were super excited. So, um, 
for the first six months, we lived with a friend. He lived in a high-rise apartment, and his roommate had dropped out of medical school, and so he sublet the um, bigger room to us because when we moved in, we had Bentley. He was about six months old. And so we stopped there and say, you know, Bentley, in this process of you moving, oh, sure. yeah. Bentley had down has down syndrome mm-hmm. and did and you didn't know that like before you had him that's right so mm-hmm. this was a, a kind of you have this kind of thing to wrestle with while you're moving into detroit yeah yeah and you know i do things sometimes a little bit overconfidently and so <laughs> no, really <laughs> <laughs> sure i'll do it you know, i'm always up for a challenge and an adventure and then I get in it, and I'm like, why? <laughs> why did I why? do this? No, I don't feel that way about Detroit, though. No. But um, I... Well, maybe you did at some points, I suspect. Sure, Just yeah. Just feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, yes, definitely. Not as a whole. No. Um, so what happened... Yeah, so he was born in August. So he was two weeks old when we did that tour. And he... When we had him in the hospital... Um, he and I like went through these very natural um, childbirth classes, and I was gonna have you know like a natural birth, and I was gonna nurse him, and I had like these very strict ideals, which I think is really good because I needed them. Because um, the hospital, you know, he was born, and they said, you know, your baby's blue, we're gonna take him, um, and I said, no, I get an hour, I get an hour before you touch him, that's the law, um, and they said, you know, they kept arguing with me and I was like no I get an hour with my son and she said your baby's blue he's not breathing we're taking him and they took him out of the room so and I did have a natural birth and so I'm like convulsing and I it was it was nothing in the way I had imagined because of course I went in with you know like rose colored glasses and um (laughs) I was in a lot of pain and and I was alone David went with Bentley we didn't know he was a boy we didn't know he had Down syndrome. We didn't know anything. It was just like all these surprises at once. And so the neonatologist came in about an hour later and she said, your baby's um, stable. He's breathing. Uh, we, suspe- we suspect he has Down syndrome. Do you have any questions? And I just looked at her and then I looked at David and he was smiling and it was his like, you're okay. I'm okay. We're okay. Hmm. And he has this very reassuring look when he gives it. Um, and so I said, when can I have my baby? And she said, let me, let him, let me get him to you. So it took another hour. Hmm. And I remember the nurse came in and I was all alone and she was confused. And she said, you know, she's cleaning up stuff. And she said, what's going on? And I said, well, they think he has Down syndrome. And I just said it sort of like that. And she was like, she kind of gasped. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know? And uh, I think she probably said, like, oh, it'll be okay, or, you know, maybe he doesn't. I don't really remember what she said, but I remember, I just remember feeling like, yeah, she's confused. And then, so they brought him to me, and I was like, I don't know, and I was holding him up, and I got his profile, which, you know, with children with Down syndrome, they kind of have, they have they can have pretty profound, you know, features that yes. tell you. And so I got him sideways and I was like, oh, yep, there it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they were like, well, now we have to test his heart. He might have heart conditions. He could have. And they gave me these books. And the books, I like, of course, went straight to it. And I like read cover to cover. 
while I was in my bed. And, um, you know, it was like he could have heart problems and he can have um, lung problems and he can have, you know, probably glasses and tubes in his ears and they're more likely to get leukemia and they're more, you know, probably never drive and he'll never live on his own. It was like all these things that they write in these books that a new mother should never read. <laughs> no. I mean, it's like giving any mother, like, right. drug, like all the things that might go wrong with your, your child. child, you know, like when your daughter uh, comes home from kindergarten uh, crying because no one wants to play with her, you know? Right. A couple, a couple hours after you have the baby, here's yeah. the books about everything that's going to go wrong. Okay. Right. Wow. So, um, and I didn't, you know, I just, I was crying and David took the books and he's like, we're not going to read these. <laughs> And then the thing that was the hardest was this nurse came in and um, she said, "How would you know? What's your levels today?" And I said, "Oh, I'm feeling great." And she was like, "Okay, well, are we working towards discharge?" And I said, "No, they want to keep us over the weekend." And she was like, she gave me this scowl, like this confused look, like why? And I was like, "Oh, well, you know, they think he has Down syndrome, so we're waiting for the karyotype, and they want to look at his heart." And she just was so confused. She obviously had not read his chart, didn't know anything about him. And so she's listening to his little heart, and she said, I think I hear a murmur. Now, no one has heard a murmur at this point. No one, everyone thinks his heart is fine. And now all of a sudden, this nurse thinks she hears a murmur, and that he's not doing well. And, all, and, they're, and then they're paging the pediatrician. You know, Dr. Cusera, please come to the, neo, or to the NICU. And she's like, I'm going to take him. So she wheels him out. And I'm just like, what is going on? Wow. And, um... The doctor, so I'm standing out there, and you know, the, the, the NICU at this hospital, you this level of NICU was um, a big glass wall, and so you could see the nurses working with the babies, but the parents weren't allowed in. So I'm like watching him through this glass, and my mom gets there, she had um, immediately gotten on a plane, and so she came in from Portland, and the doctor came out and he said, sometimes our nurses overreact. He's fine. <laughs> so he like, and I'm like, you know, sh- like um, telling the you know, nurses with my hands to like bring him back to me. And so they bring him and I wheel him back into my room and I sit down and I pick him up and Aww. I just hold him like, you're fine. <laughs> so, um, and then it was three, I convinced the hospital <laughs> To find a room in Peds um, instead of keeping him in the NICU, so I could stay with him, and they were gracious, and they did they did that. So they made him a Peds patient instead of in the NICU, and um, which meant that I had a bed, right. and I didn't because I was like, I'm not leaving this hospital without my son. Um, you know, which is kind of an entitled thing to say because I know a lot of women that leave hospitals without their babies, sure, without their you know because there's no place for them to sleep, you right. know. But it worked out for me. And you're a pretty determined person. I am a, t- <laughs> I am a determined person. Who do I need to call? Of course, I had a connection. So. Yes. <laughs> that <Yeah>. always helps. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, so so that's all. You had the baby, and then three weeks later, you're moving, subletting a, a room uh-huh. and, and headed down to, into inner city Detroit to live with your new baby. Yeah. And your husband yeah yeah that was and you know i had done some reading about detroit um and you know people in arizona probably won't understand some of the like 
If you want to learn listen, about... We have listeners in Japan, so they might... There you go. If you want to read an amazing book, read The History of the Urban Crisis. It's a case study look at the city of Detroit. And um, it's amazing. And it starts out a little bit... It's a little bit hard to get into it. But once you're in, man, you cannot put it down. So um, Detroit basically has very distinguished border lines of like, are you in the city or are you out of the city? You know, and you know, the movie Eight Mile gets into it a little bit. Um, and so I wanted to be in the city and I wanted to spend my money in the city and I wanted to do everything in the city. So I went to the local grocery stores and... Um, I would often be the only white person, um, and I went to the YMCA downtown, and I worked out there. And this, like, this was before people were moving back into the city. The city has changed exponentially from this point. But I felt like my husband is in the medical school here, and I want to spend my money in this, in the local. And I want to be part of the city, and so... So, so would you say that that book... When did you read that book? I can't remember. I'm, I'm not... A, not yet. I hadn't read it. Um, because I feel like in, in my relationship with you, I know that there was a shift as you moved to Detroit. Like, there's a shift in your understanding, like, of the African-American community. Because that mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily your focus. Right. In, in the conversations about, even about just what's happening in the world. It was more South Africa, Rwanda, yeah. you know, South America, things that were in, you know, severe poverty in other countries was really more where your focus was. And still, until you did the foster care, and that kind of began to change it a little bit. To- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had no idea that um, we had the kind of poverty and systemic problems in this country that we do until I lived in Detroit. Um so after we lived in that apartment, we rented a house in the neighborhood for a couple years. And all of our neighbors were black. Um, and they were, they all had jobs and they all um, were super welcoming to us. And so we started one day, David said, let's have a barbecue. And he pulled the barbecue girl out onto the front sidewalk. And we just knocked on everyone's doors and invited them. And we had tons of meat and sides, and everybody came. It was crazy, because we've done that since then. We've never had that kind of turnout. And our neighbors, there were kids, and there were teens, and there were single people. There was a woman who had her daughter who has cerebral palsy, who's in her 30s at the time, or 40s, who she had to carry up and down steps to get up into their apartment or ask for help um that was definitely a situation of social justice that i you know tried to help we eventually did get her into a better house well i shouldn't say we we helped her um uh and so that spurred on a weekly potluck that we had in our house every week we ate together and um that experience opened me up to um, African-American culture. Like, my next-door neighbor, Renee, was she was so willing to teach me. She never made me feel like my questions were stupid. Um, she, had a, she had raised her children, and she was taking care of other people's kids. She had some foster kids, and then she, would, she was just like... Everyone called her Granny, Granny Brown. That, um, and so... Um, her home was safe for a lot of people, but, you know, it also meant that sometimes people were screaming at each other at 2 a.m. outside of her house, yes. you know? 
and um and I would ask her about it and she would always tell me and so I really learned people's stories um and then you know we were part of an inner city church um we looked at churches like Lawndale um as examples you guys have talked about Lawndale in Chicago on the podcast um Wayne Stapleton was somebody that I read a lot about and heard him speak a lot because we wanted to do inner city ministry, but it is really hard because, first of all, there are a lot of thriving churches already in Detroit. Right. And then um, you don't, and when you mix ministry and helping people and you mesh them together, it can get really messy. Because do you help people because they deserve it? Because they do the right thing? Right. Or do you help people because it's the right thing to do, right? Right. So if you don't agree with someone's lifestyle, does that mean you stop helping them? Right. And so we were really faced with those kinds of things. And um, I, yeah, I really struggled with the church that we belong to and, you know, we ended up getting kicked out of it, long story short. Yeah. Um, and then we put Bentley, who is now... I mean, there's so many stories I could tell, like, <laughs> of him doing early childhood classes with other kids and just, you know, hearing their stories and seeing where those kids come from. And then... Um, well, and it seems like Bentley began to take front and center as he was engaging, getting older and engaging with other kids and going into schools, which then created more touch points for you to be in relationship with people in the schools and different mothers and in the community. Yeah. Actually the, the point that one of the biggest changes for me was I went to the CCDA conference, Christian Community Development Association, which is a huge conference that happens around the United States, and it's all to bring people who do inner city ministry together and and just um, learn from each other and share stories and pains. And so I went three years in a row, and one year I went to this workshop called "So What About the Kids," and it was about kids whose parents do ministry and like what about their individual needs like do do you ever leave the inner city because it's not best for them you know right it's a, a good question yeah and so i raised my hand and i said i have this little guy with down syndrome he was probably two or three at the time because i had clayton with me and clayton was a few months old six months old and um she was this you know probably in her 50s woman so kind and so willing to share like all the things that they had done wrong and the things that they were proud of she said you have been dealt a different card and you need to consider his needs first and I like didn't like her answer (laughs) I was like no because lots of people have kids with down syndrome in poor places and they don't leave because they don't have a choice and so I'm not leaving. I'm not I'm not going to find what's best for him because it's not fair, right? Mm. And so I really wrestled with that for a long time. But her words never left, you know? And so um, we found a school. Um, we were going to send him to the... At this point, we've moved. We've bought a house. David's in residency. Um, now we have three children and we've left our church and we're in a new church that and we're um 
grieving in. I don't think we ever started the healing process really in Detroit. Mm-hmm. We were grieving there. And um, we, and so I ended up, he ended up at the Bog School. And that's politically where I changed 100%. Because it is a school of activists and a school of um, heart for the city and a school that's really raw and rich and... Um, so that's like that was the so like, shift. Could for you me. could you give like uh, some distinctives about that school? Like what were like some of the main things that kind of really pushed you in a different direction in thinking about the community, thinking about. So the Boggs School is birthed out of. Um, so James and Grace Lee Boggs were activists um, in Detroit. He um, and I'm probably going to tell these sorry with a little bit of inaccuracy because I can't hold to all the information but he had moved up from the south to work in the auto industry um, he was African American she was um, a Chinese American who was from New York I believe um, and she um, held tightly to the to the values and the mission of um, black civil rights in this country and they, um, their, their work had, it was a progression of change. You know, it was very, um, Malcolm X-esque and then it was very, um, kind of Martin Luther King-ish, like the kind of changes as, you know, as they saw what happens when you engage a community when you are, um, fighting for what's right. And, right. and when your movement gets so large that you lose control of how it's, going right and so you want to make sure that the value is the same that we're not trying to destroy our community we're trying to to fight for for equality and for um and for the way that people are treated right Right. and so um so anyways the school was like a movement out of that there's a the james and there's the bog center which has been around for a long time which is um up the street and they've done a lot of work um in training black leaders in detroit um and one of the one of the principal the principal of the Bog School she was um, she had gone to the summer program and um, she had as a child babysat for Micah um, Fialka Feldman who is um, kind of an icon in the disability world he was appointed by President Obama to be on the disability commission he's done huge work. Um, around this country and he lives in Syracuse, New York and works at um, Syracuse University. Anyways, I had a lot, so I got, so at the box school I met disability activists, I met civil rights activists, I met people who had moved to the city because they wanted to be, you know, a part of change, people who garden, people who do yoga, people who, um, and then, and then all the neighborhood families, you know, and, um, So, for example, there's this happened since I left, um, and it's a really raw story. But there are some kids in the school, and um, they're one of the brothers is um, involved in um, some drugs, and um, I'm not sure the extent of everything. But um, one evening, he um, what went to rob a man at a local um, gas station, and the man was an undercover cop who had a gun and um, killed him. And um, so the Boggs had a lot of grieving because 
that they had children who were his brother, you know? And to children, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been involved in. You've just lost your brother. Right. And um, and they started a GoFundMe, and they raised money for the family, and they just surrounded this family. And, like, that also changed me because, you know, we're at, like, in my values that I was raised with, it's like you get what you ask for, right? So, like, if you do something, like... Yeah, you get what you deserve. Yeah. So you, you like, rob somebody... You died. You died. You, you risk. You're taking a risk. Yeah. yeah. You shouldn't have done that, right? But that's like, there are so many levels to any decision that we make that you can't just look at that one decision, right? Right. And, um, I mean, if we have to look at our systems. We have to look at our schools. We have to look at our, our criminal justice system. We have to look at how we treat people as a country. And that's where I put the blame for what happened that night. I don't put it on that man like individual you know when i look at these stories but that's i think this kind of stuff that you know because i sit back and i read the stories and i'm doing all this googling because i want to understand like why was he there and what happened and why is the bog school raising money and oh my gosh it's so-and-so's brother and wow and and that all that research allows me to come to this point where the end result is not what i would expect and yet it's what i totally um support it you know so yeah so the bog school and you know a lot of those um individuals there's three women who started it and i really look up to all three of them and then i know people on the board and then i know parents in the school and they've all pushed me to grow in different ways yeah so so now you come to i mean eventually david finishes medical school and I mean, you guys kind of go from really living on the street to kind of moving a little bit out of that because of such painful experiences you guys had there mm-hmm. to David always being a doctor and doctors make money. Right. right? That's not, you know, and so now we're, we're recording in this nice house mm-hmm. um, and Bentley's now, you said, eight? He's nine. Nine, right. Mm-hmm. I should know that every Sunday. Right? He says nine, almost <laughs> ten. <laughs> right. Um, but... So he's old, much older. I mean, it's like a 10-year story that's kind of changed you. Yeah. And now you're kind of in a place where, you know, you wrote a blog about Bentley and about the struggles of, of his stubbornness and his disability and his joy and his beauty all wrapped up sort of in one yeah. package. Right? <laughs> that you it's as a lot. A, you as a mom are have to deal with and, and how he encounters the world and you are always going to be encountering the world with him in a way mm-hmm. you know like i've learned as my kids have gotten older that they encounter the world by themselves and, and i assist in that and then right. less and less but with bentley there's always going to be in some sense you encountering the world with him sure um and so some of the, the and understanding the nuances and the the, the ways that he's going to be pushed out right better than he does yeah in a lot of ways um, and, and helping him work through that. So you And you have a heart, because part of the whole, like, you know, entering into the African-American community, becoming more aware of where they're at, trying to be part of their story as best you can, mm-hmm. which is hard as somebody who's not African-American, oh, yeah. because totally. in some ways it's not even fair to them for you to be part of their story in some ways. Right. And, um, yeah, they owe me nothing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then, but also that's kind of with the disabilities and what happens because in some ways, well, in a lot of ways, our culture, as you said in your blog, is not 
designed, our, our world is not designed for people with disabilities. Our right. homes are not built for people with disabilities. I mean, we've learned that just with somebody in our community has a wheelchair. Not half of our homes she can't even come into because the bathroom doors are too small. Or, right. I mean, just little things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, to like your example of them closing the schools and when they reopen the schools, they don't have the workers to have kids who, you know, any kind of to help disabilities. So they all have to stay home while That's the other right. kids go. So there's there's these distinctions that we don't. I mean, nowadays we call these in some they're micro things that push against. They're not big, but they add up and create a very stressful environment. And also, just you're not in. You're not included. Right. You're not included. And so, like you shifted to that. It seems in a lot of ways because you're you're not heavily involved in activism for you know the the African American community. You seem more connected to Bentley's story and to where you can step in and be in that. Um, I don't know if you could just kind of talk more about where you're at with that and how you, as you said, in your 30s feel about being activist versus that girl who was sobbing in Rwanda. Right. <laughs> movie. Like what, what change is like, what has maturity brought to you and just age? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we decided to move back to Tucson um, and we decided that uh, God was leading us to, well, I mean, the CEO of Children's Clinics basically found us and wanted David to work at, at Children's Clinics. He'd never heard of it, um, and so he signed on with that. And so um, that was kind of the shift change. Um, and, we, you know, like I had mentioned, we were part of a really broken community, and, and or we were really broken in Detroit. And so it wasn't I, – I was unable to – engaged the way I had longed to because of that you know when we're grieving we just we you know we're wounded healers but there's something about when you're like literally in the muck of it when you're like eating the gravel as we say it's really hard to be a healer right it's kind of like we recognize our brokenness but as we kind of move out of like really painful stages then we're able to like work out of our healing or work out of our our wounds, right. right? But if you're like, if they're like wide open, <laughs> and you're gushing. Yes. So we were gushing at the end there in Detroit. Um, but I guess I want to say that because I feel sometimes like I like rejected the black community or that no, I like walked no. away from it. But that's not, you know, that's my own like reminding that that's not what's true. Um, so we got here, and um, I have I became I went to a, a training. And I met, you know, 20 other parents who have kids with disabilities, and I learned their stories very, very intimately. Like, you know, we each shared and we each sobbed every single story. Um, and we look at the different facets of disability from history of disability to how to, um, act, like, state legislation, federal legislation, employment, um, job, or employment, education, housing person-centered planning it's all these aspects and so each time you're learning you're asking the presenters and you're sharing your story and it made me realize like how disconnected we are from what's happening with families of kids with disabilities right and so I feel like it could have been me like it could have been me who doesn't understand like the only reason that I know as much as I do is because I have Bentley. You know, I have have friends who have adopted kids with disabilities and they feel like they've chosen this life 
and they feel a little bit different than women who've had babies who didn't know, who didn't right. choose, who don't feel like we chose it, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of, um, I'm learning that change is slow <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like the presenter, so now I am employed by the same the conference that I went to, I'm now employed by the agency that provides what's the conference. The, what's the name of that agency? Yeah, so it's called Pilot Parents of Southern Arizona, and they put on a national program called, um, it, it's called the Arizona Partners in Leadership. It's also known as Partners in Policymaking, um, and it comes out of the state of Minnesota, and it's, it's geared towards um, training parents and self-advocates, um, like I said, the different... Um, about the different facets of disability and um, what is happening. What are the laws and what's happening in your state and how? what's the disconnect, right? So we have these national presenters that come and they share what's happening around the country and then we have people from the state come in and it's really depressing sometimes because what's happening in Arizona isn't necessarily, it's not, what's hap- it's not what the law says, right? But it change is so slow because you're, First of all, you have a system that is not well-funded, so you don't have people that make much money, and then there's constant turnover. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's, like, what I do. What was the other... Well, I was just curious, like, what, what's changed from the girl who was, was crying in the Rwanda to, to now, who, and where you're, you're, you're mature, you've, you've had all these experiences, and, and you're raising kids, and you're trying to kind of balance all of that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're, your husband, is, in some ways you're doing this more professionally, like your husband is working in a place where he is, specializes in disabilities and, and, and really hard cases. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of doctors doing that in Tucson. No. Um, and you know, and then and you have this this activism thing that you're doing, but you but it's your job. Like you're getting paid at some level for it. It's your, and yeah. So I get paid 15 hours a week, um, and then I, and then everything else I do is volunteer. Okay. And um, so I guess I got my I lost my question, but the question is what changed? Like like something like what have you learned, and what makes you different than the girl just? Inspired by seeing suffering and, and wanting to to step in some way and wanting to yeah. So in Detroit, we used to talk about this idea of micro and macro. So micro helping is like you help individual families with individual situations and problems, right? right. And we're like like the church surrounds like a family and helps them and and gets them stable, right? Then you have macro, which is like helping lots of people with either system change or, um, you know, teach like this, like training families. I feel like um, the thing that I'm best at is sharing resources and information. And so how do I help parents know the law so that they can advocate for their children? Because I, in my stage of life right now, my job are my children. It's my calling. It's what... If I neglect that, then I'm like, why did I even have them, right? Right. So I have this thing on my wall in our bedroom that says, um, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Because, like, I feel like they're they're the forefront. And so with that belief, I think parents have 
I want to train them in what is the law, what does it say, and when it's not happening for your child, when you're not getting what's fair, how do you advocate? How do you find resources and people to make that different? And so I use social media a lot to um, connect parents with information, and then we do, you know, these trainings. And I think that, like, I've, you know, there's, it's, we live in a sad world, and I cry a lot about the things that I can't change, right? Right. I would like to change gun laws, you know, and then we have a shooting two days ago, three days ago, and um, and I'm like, the lobbyists are so wealthy and so strong, like, I'm, I can't, I cannot, there are people who are doing it and I will support them, but like, I cannot fix every broken thing that breaks my heart, right. and I have had to come to that realization, and so I just try to engage in the thing that I feel like I can make a dent in, you know? And so I think bringing awareness is, like, my my biggest passion. So, we probably have to end soon, but I, one question that as I've been listening to you the whole time I've wanted to ask is, as you, I mean, you have three children, and so I guess the question I would have is, what has Bentley taught you? Because Bentley is in a different place, he's a beautiful kid. Like, what has he taught you? Mm-hmm. And and then what of your two other children in related to Bentley and you and just that the, that special like like community that you have that has very unique children like what what have you learned out of that mm-hmm. as they interact with Bentley as Bentley interacts with them is this kind of what your family has become like what have you learned what do you enjoy what gets yeah. you excited. Well, I mean, he's taught me patience, right? (laughs) That's a given. (laughs) He's taught me that, you know, there's this idea that, like, if you notice, if you go to the grocery store, if you go um, out into the community, how often do you see people with disabilities? Not often. Yeah. And how many people with disabilities are there? A lot. Yeah. A lot. A lot of people with profound disabilities. They are in their homes with their doors shut for whatever reason. And my hope is to change that, right? And that's... One of the things the presenter said this weekend was inclusion is so important because the children in your son or daughter's classroom are the employers of the future. And if they understand and interact with kids who are differently abled, autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, um, a variety, you know, blind or um, hearing impaired, like... When they go to open up their business or when they're running a, a franchise or when they're, you know, doing whatever they're doing and and um, Bentley's looking for a job, they're going to be more willing to employ him because they're not afraid of him. Right. And we have a fear about the things that we don't that we don't know. And I think historically we have kept we put kids in institutions um, and we kept them separate and we taught parents to be embarrassed. And so. Like, my thing that I'm learning is Bentley was born into a family with a brother and a sister. And God's intention for that was that that we are together in community together. And that watching them learn to interact with him and protect him and push him, right? So they'll, like, get off the bus and they'll say he wasn't listening. Or they'll get off of the bus and they'll say everyone was bullying him. And Lily comes home sobbing sometimes because of the way kids treat him on the bus or, um, or if I'm not asking enough of him, well, why doesn't Bentley have to do it? And so they, they're constantly this voice of like, 
what's real and, and seeing him as their equal, you know? And we talked about this one time at a training I was at about our, about siblings and it said, you know, sometimes we're kind, we're trying to like protect the kids from each other or we're trying to like, and somebody said, isn't it so lovely that there are two people in my family, so two, two siblings, two people in the whole world that don't see him as different, that don't see him with Down syndrome, that right. see him as their brother who is expected to do the same things that they are. And I just love that. And I feel like that's the message to the world is, wouldn't it be nice if people engaged in our family and knew him enough to see him as just like the other kids, right. you know, and to know his story enough. And so um, I think that that's the thing that, like, I'm really thankful that we get to have a, a picture of, a picture of, you know, God at the table in our family. And I've really wrestled with some scriptures about brokenness and I kind of have this like lingering question which we've talked about and we don't need to get in you know it could be a whole nother pad- another podcast, podcast yeah. <laughs> but like is Bentley broken you know right. is he the broken one or are we the broken ones or are we all broken you know right and so really you know I really wrestle with that and think about that a lot if God knit him in my womb the same way that Clayton and Lily were knit um and you know we don't know what causes Down syndrome we don't there's not it happens across the board rich poor black white um so you know maybe he's not the mistake maybe you know but he's also not the angel here either right no he's, he's not, not we don't want to look at him as an angel right he's just a person yeah well that's the the, the experience is either you you really are just super hard on him and and or see him as the broken thing that you just have to kind of always make sure he's not doing something he shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. right or or you you kind of especially when you're on the outside you're like think well what what are just the things that could do to make bentley better like life better like Mm -hmm. you know and i I think um that's complicated because I think it's complicated because you're on the inside, and that's what you're saying. It's a parent, like, you know, and I say it with my own kids in their own struggles, it's a parent, I know the struggle, and I get it. Mm-hmm. Everybody on the outside, when those struggles kind of seep out, like your little special naked one, which was just hilarious. Like, right. Like, those things everybody sees, right? Right. And, and no matter if, like, they love you, there's still a process of thinking that they're going, like, well, why does that happen? Like, mm-hmm. well, you know, you, but you don't know the st- internal struggle or the internal story and you're thinking oh well maybe she could do this or maybe she could do that like your brain will shift there very quickly it's like how to fix the problem right because that's a problem right Right. and so we kind of work our way through and we do that with everybody's kids right but um bentley i think especially in our community i mean he he is the one with a more profound disability and so you know there is I mean, I think he's a beautiful gift to our community. Mm-hmm. But, um... Yeah, it's that, like... But we're still on the outside of it. Right. Yeah, well, and it's like that podcast you guys had about judgment, right? Like, how do you live without judging? Like, how I'm parenting and live without... How do I not judge your parenting, right? Yes. But, like, but we're constantly judging... Right. ...our situation and what's going on around us, right? And, um... I, you know... Well, and there's the internal. It's not even us judging others. There's our own internal judgment right. of ourselves and where we fit and how well we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
totally. I think um, for people on the... I think, like, reading books is helpful. So, like, reading people's stories, um, it normalizes things, right? So there's... I mean, I could suggest there are so many books. Like, just people have written... They're just stories, like Expecting Adam and The, um, the Lucky Few... Um, there's Bloom, there's My Heart Can't Even Believe It, it's probably my favorite. Those are all stories of families of children with Down syndrome. And they and they share why how they got into it and what the journey has mm-hmm. been up into this point in, the, in that child's life. And I feel like that's how I, you know, I have friends with kids with cerebral palsy. And, you know, again, that's a disability that has a, a vast array of, of differences and challenges and, sure. um, and uh, strengths. And so... When I read stories, though, when I read the books, it helps me, you know, understand someone's life. And then I just do a lot of watching. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of observing. And I'm a person, I'm like a teacher by nature, so you can ask me a lot of things. And, I, like, I'll do my very best to not be offended by people's questions. I welcome them. But I have friends who, who don't want to be asked. No. They're like, I'm done. I'm done being everyone's teacher. Right. Um, it's right. just really well, hard. and I think like even to go back to the African American thing, like the Netflix show that like, came, Dear White People, yeah. is built out of yeah, sitting on my keys. This <laughs> is built on you know, on African Americans not wanting to be white people's teachers, right? Totally, it, you know, and I think because uh, yeah. uh, You're living it, and it is enough to live, like, the... (laughs) (laughs) This is a little unfortunate. Where did my keys go? Oh, I'm sitting on my keys. Oh, and so they're making your phone ring? (laughs) Um, so, yeah, because you're, like, you're currently living it, and the struggle is real, and you don't have time to, like, like, people do ask dare I call them stupid questions, right? right? I get asked a lot of stupid questions. Some people say no question is stupid. Well, you know, some questions are hard and they hurt. Yeah, they're painful. They're very painful. Um, and so, you know, if you have a child who is going to be, you know, using diapers their whole life and needs to fed every day and wakes up multiple times and is in and out of the hospital, when you're asked, like, how well, how expensive is that? Or what's it like to change a child's diaper? Oh, I could never do that. That stuff... Nobody wants to hear that. Right, it's right. not helpful. No. Right? And the same with the black experience, you know? Like, you don't... It's... We have to look for other resources and educate ourselves to some degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think podcasts like this... I, I really appreciate this because I... I even learned a few things. And I've known you for, like, 13 years. And I'm like, huh, I didn't even know little bits of your story. And I've heard your story a lot. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, it's really cool. And I think having your story out is important. You know, people Mm -hmm. need to know what it's like on the inside of all of our lives. But, you know, yours in particular. Mm -hmm. So thank you for letting me do this. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Or letting me push my way in. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. When do I get to be on the podcast? (laughs) Well, thank you. I think that's it. I think we're done with this podcast. All right, sounds good. Awesome.